This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, knee arthritis, whether you should be spending your hard-earned dough on platelet-rich plasma injections. And you'll also find out whether these popular injections help ankle arthritis. The relationship between influenza and Parkinson's disease and, yes, Omicron. The latest variant of concern, first found in Botswana just over two weeks ago, with the alarm raised by South African doctors and scientists last week, and the declaration of concern and the naming by the World Health Organization on Friday. Moving fast. In South Africa, Omicron looks as though it's pushing aside Delta, which could mean it's significantly more contagious. And many countries have closed their borders to people from Southern Africa, even though the virus already seems to be spread widely, including to Australia. There's a storm of speculation about where Omicron came from and whether we really should be worried. Earlier, I spoke to evolutionary virologist Professor Eddie Holmes of the University of Sydney on Zoom, hence you find a bit of a sound problem with my voice. Professor Holmes has been watching the coronavirus closely since he released the genome to the world in January 2020. At the moment, it's a little bit hard to know exactly where this virus has come from. The evolutionary lineage, so kind of where it's derived from, that appears to have existed probably in 2020. So it's not come from Delta. It's actually a separate branch of its evolution. And it's a little bit unclear about exactly where it's come from. I think there are three basic theories for how it emerged. One is that it may have been hidden somewhere, perhaps in Southern Africa. We hadn't detected it for many months. It's kind of gone silently and suddenly appeared. That's one theory. Another theory is that maybe it's evolved in someone who's got a weakened immune system. We know in Southern Africa, there are many people with HIV infection. You don't clear the virus so well. And maybe that's the evolution in HIV has led to some of these amazing reputations the virus has got. Or the third theory, which I think is possible as well, is that um, maybe the virus got into an animal somewhere, maybe again in Southern Africa. It's evolved in an animal. That explains some of these strange changes then then re-emerge in humans so all those three routes are actually still on the table for discussion so people are behaving as though this is a new pandemic virus and from what you just said the third option actually could possibly mean that it is a new pandemic virus yeah, it's possible. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't overstress the third option. It's, it's a possibility. At the moment, we need to go through all these tests, all possible theories of where it came from. It's the same basic virus, the same genetic structure. It's got mostly the same sequence. It's very similar to the, the, the original strain we had, but the spike protein, the kind of the, the protein that sits on, on the surface of the virus, interacts with host cells. The ones that we, we use our vaccines to work against to stimulate the immune response, that's very, very different. It's a reconfiguration of what we had before. It's certainly new and novel in that respect. And the really key question is how well the vaccines we have will prevent infection and reinfection, and probably more importantly, disease. And that's, that's the kind of key question. We don't have the answer to that question at the moment. But in the past, how closely have the genes mirrored the behavior of the virus? Because it's one thing to find the genes and panic a bit. The other is, do the genes translate into the behavior of the virus? It's a little bit difficult to exactly equate the number of mutations in the spike proteins, the key protein, with how well the virus will evade immunity. All the variants of concern have had quite different spike proteins. This is by far the most. This is actually why I think you, you've seen a level of concern happen so rapidly in the last few days, because it is so divergent the spike. If we take beta, so beta was um, a game from Southern Africa, we think. Beta was the, was the variant of concern we've had before that was the most immune evasive. Now, it didn't spread very rapidly. So Delta won that kind of race in terms of replication speed, transmission potential. Beta was the most immune evasive. Omicron is much more 
divergent in the spike than beta and it's it's hitting the kind of limitations that it's divergent at are the ones you might expect to change the R immune response so the expectation is it'll be more immune evasive than beta again the key question though is if it maybe it allows you to reinfect that's one thing does it also allow you to still cause serious disease and we just haven't got the data for that at the moment has anybody identified genetic mutations on the coronavirus which code for virulence, for seriousness of disease? It's very difficult to, at the moment to, to make a clear indication of what mutations encode for virulence. And that virulence itself is a very complicated, nuanced um, trait that's actually partly the virus and partly the host and partly the environment. It's actually a very complicated thing. We've all heard the reports from South Africa in the last few days suggesting that this is mainly associated with mild disease. I think you take those a bit of a pinch of salt at the moment. The numbers are quite low. South Africa has a very young population. It's quite hard to kind of put that in context. Maybe it has lower virulence, but that's certainly, in theory, that's possible. I don't think we can simply say, ah, it's got that mutation, therefore it's lower virulence. I think it's, it's a much more kind of complicated um, situation. Again, these are these are complex proteins. They're not kind of linear. We think a sequence is a linear, is a linear sequence, but in fact, they encode a complex conformational structure. And what that means is actually quite hard to predict how each mutation is going to work because it's interacting with lots of things. So at the end of the day, we'll just have to collect the data, do the experiments, and those will, those will take a little while to become. People seem to be patient, I think, unfortunately. So when it comes, I'm using your phrase now, to a shootout in the OK Corral, between Delta and this one, who's going to win? Do we know yet? We don't know yet. It's hard to say. So it's certainly clear that the new variant is spreading. We can see that. It's, we, we see the news of ourselves. We've got a couple of cases in Sydney now. It's gone to the countries. It's certainly spreading a bit in Southern Africa. That in itself does not necessarily mean it's going to outcompete Delta. And I think we need to keep a view on that. The key thing is how will it do in a country like Australia? Hopefully it won't spread here, but or in European countries where there's a stronger level, high level of immunity because of vaccination. South African countries don't have such high vaccination levels as we do, which is itself an issue. In those situations, it might do quite well. But in a situation where there's immunity because of vaccination, how will it do? And that I don't think we know yet. So I can't give you, I can't tell you who's best armed at the moment between Delta and Omicron. Time will tell. The good thing is we, we kind of got a, a jump start on this. South Africans are very good at releasing their data very quickly. And so we can, we're all kind of like getting prepared for this. So much quicker than we were with Delta. So I think we're actually, although it's not a, obviously a bad thing to happen, I think we're pretty well prepared, hopefully, to kind of act quickly. And does this foretell the future in any sense in terms of future evolutionary changes? It's a little bit hard. It's always hard to predict evolution of these things. I've done it myself and got it terribly wrong. What I think is going to happen is that in the first few years of, of a new virus, so between now and maybe three or four years in the future, that's where I expect the selection, evolution to be the strongest and evolution to be most rapid because it's where you've got the most populations that are still unvaccinated, some that are partially vaccinated. It's kind of complex set of environments, and that's going to push the virus. Selection press is going to be the strongest. So it's no surprise to me that these sorts of variants are happening now. Omicron is extremely divergent in, in the spike print. That is a surprise. But the idea that these things appear now is a no surprise at all. How long that will go on for, one year, two years, three years, you know, that I think is harder to say. So I think we're in for a bit of a, an up and down kind of ride for, for a while yet. And then maybe the evolution kind of calm down as people as there's more widespread immunity in the population of vaccination and that might kind of dampen down how the virus interacts with us but 
Time will tell, sadly. Professor Eddie Holmes is an evolutionary biologist and virologist at the University of Sydney. This is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. It won't shock you to hear that there are fads in medicine. That's not to say that fads don't work, but it'd be nice to know that they do before you expose, say, your sore, stiff knee to a procedure and your bank account to the bill. One such popular treatment is platelet-rich plasma injections, where the doctor or a company or a nurse takes your blood, spins it down and injects the plasma, the yellow fluid on top, into your knee joint. It's touted to relieve the symptoms of osteoarthritis and perhaps even delay or avoid knee replacement surgery. A group of Australian researchers has just published a randomised clinical trial of platelet-rich plasma injections in knee osteoarthritis. They published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. One of the authors was David Hunter, who's Professor of Rheumatology at the University of Sydney and an old friend of the Health Report. David, welcome back. Thanks very much for having me along, Norman. What's the theory behind this plasma? The platelet enrichment is thought to contain a number of growth factors that are helpful for repair of joint and other tissues, and that's the underlying theory as to why it may work. Right. I, I mean, I thought it was irritation. So, you know, physical irritation is what some people thought happened. Um, there are some variations of platelet-rich plasma which have more white cell count, more greater leukocyte numbers, and by virtue of that, it can also cause inflammation. Some of the growth factors are also thought to lead to a short-term inflammation and hence repair. But again, this is really needs to be tested properly. Um, now, I've heard of orthopedic surgeons taking the blood, spinning it down in the office and then re-injecting it back in, but there's also commercial, there are also commercial products available. There are a number of companies that are involved in this space that are selling kits that allow this to be done in the clinic and allow the blood to be spun down and then re-injected. And so that's, that's actually a big, big business. How big? Um, the last estimate that I saw, Norman, from about two years ago in the US was in the order of about $200 million per year just in the US, and it was growing at about 10 to 15% a year. And how often do you get the injections and what do they knock you back? The, the number of in, injections varies by the proprietary product, but in general, it's somewhere in the range of three to five injections given weekly. Um, and the typical cost of these, again, varies a little bit depending upon who's administering it, but can range anywhere from $500 an injection up to $2,000 an injection. And what was the evidence that it worked before you did the trial? So the number of randomised trials that are out there that I would categorise as not optimal quality, primarily because they had poor blinding, either of the participants in the study or the assessors, hence uh, some of them knew what they were receiving. And in those trials, there was actually a strong suggestion of a positive effect from rich plasma. Uh, but unfortunately, there hadn't been a rigorous trial done to date until we conducted ours. And what did you do in your trial? We recruited 288 people with painful knee osteoarthritis and randomised them to either saltwater injections or platelet-rich plasma, PRP injections, which were given weekly over three weeks. And then we followed these people out for 12 months and monitored their pain 
and also looked at cartilage thickness on an MRI. And at the end of that 12-month period, there is no clinically meaningful or statistical difference in either their pain or their MRI structure. From placebo, did, the, did you get a, a, a difference in pain overall? There was a difference in pain. So this is pain measured on a 0 to 10 scale. And what we saw in both groups uh, was a two-unit improvement approximately. Um, but again, no meaningful difference between the two treatment groups. So there is um, a placebo effect, which we know is quite strong in injection trials in knee osteoarthritis that we did demonstrate in this trial as well. Any complications? Uh, we didn't see any meaningful or significant adverse effects related to this. But any time you stick a needle in a joint, you do run the risk of introducing an infection, which is the underlying concern that we were worried about. But we did not see that in the 288 people we recruited. So story over? Um, this, is, this is one particular modality of delivering platelet-rich plasma. And most of the criticism that's come our way by, by virtue of regenerative medicine specialists since the trial has been published is that there are other preparations out there that are thought to be better. But I guess I would charge them with coming up with evidence because at the present time, they don't have good evidence to substantiate their comments. So at least from my perspective, uh, platelet-rich plasma is not something I'm going to be advocating people with osteoarthritis receive. It's like the old story with glucosamine where one particular manufacturer said that, you know, their, their product was much better than the others, but there probably wasn't any difference in the end. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, there are lots of stories like this in osteoarthritis, as you well know, Norman, with arthroscopy, opioids, uh, where there's been strong vogue towards wanting to use uh, different types of treatments. But unfortunately, the trial is not substantiating uh, using these particular types of treatment. It's a shame because it'd be nice if it did work and prevent unnecessary surgery. Well, I think for the, from the perspective of people who have painful knee osteoarthritis, they're desperately looking for treatments. And so pain at present is a, is a large unmet need. But there is a lot that they can do uh, with regards exercise, remaining active, and if they're above a healthy weight, losing weight. Um, but this is one of a number of therapies that we're finding out in trials at present uh, that are probably not necessarily standing up to, to muster. Now, the other one that, that's being used um, in some orthopaedic surgeons' offices and also rheumatologists is stem cell injections. Exactly. So again, they, they appear to be quite widely used, appear to be quite expensive. Um, and at present, the best evidence uh, doesn't necessarily advocate for its use. Um, we're currently conducting a study uh, looking at the use of intraarticular stem cell injections and again, monitoring people's pain and structure on MRI. And that's a study called the Sculptor Study or Sculptor Trial. And it's been conducted at Sydney and then Hobart. Um, and as, as we say, it's, we're recruiting for that trial at the moment. So if you look for the Sculptor Study or Sculptor Trial, you should be able to find that. So you're, it's open for business. And um, we'll put that uh, link on our website. So nothing much new in osteoarthritis then, um, apart from weight-bearing exercise, keeping your quads strong and looking after the pain a bit. It's an exciting time to be involved, Norman, because there's lots of people out there who haven't been as active during the lockdown as they could have been. And so we're actually seeing a lot of people who, who need a lot of help. But uh, I think it's actually quite exciting because there's a lot of what we call disease-modifying therapies being developed that, that modify both structure and symptoms that are in late-stage phase three trials, which I think will lead to dramatic changes in care within the next three to five years. Well, we'll get you back on. David, thanks for joining us.
Thanks so much for having me along. And we'll have the details of that trial, as I said, on our website. David Hunter is Professor of Rheumatology at the University of Sydney. The knee isn't the only joint injected with platelet-rich plasma. It's being used on people with ankle osteoarthritis. There's been a trial in the Netherlands. One of the researchers was Dr Liam Paget in the Department of Orthopaedic Surgery at the University of Amsterdam, and I spoke to him recently. Thank you for having me. You were looking at people with osteoarthritis of the ankle. Is that a common problem? The prevalence is about 3.4% of the general population is thought to have ankle osteoarthritis. As opposed to the knee and the hip joint, it's actually more secondary to a previously sustained trauma, which is why you also see that in elite athletes that have sustained loads of ankle injuries and ankle operations. The prevalence is uh, significantly higher than in the general population. And is it like osteoarthritis in other joints, pain, stiffness, swelling, other problems? Exactly, and reduced range of motion, yeah. So what did you do in the study? We included 100 patients and we injected half of them with PRP or platelet-rich plasma and the other half we injected with water or placebo injection. We didn't tell the patients beforehand or throughout the study which injection we were giving them or which they had received. And as the physicians, we also had no idea what we were actually giving the patients either. Did you colour the injection yellow? No, so basically for all 100 patients, we did the exact same procedure. We had one physician, which was myself, who saw all the patients did the same procedure, made the PRP, the platelet-rich plasma, and also made a placebo injection. And I covered both syringes with the black plastic uh, surrounding uh, cover. And then one uh, research assistant that wasn't blinded for the intervention then gave me back one syringe, which I then injected together with another physician colleague into the ankle. What were the findings? At six months, we found quite a reasonable improvement, about 10 points, but we actually found no difference whatsoever between either groups. So it was on average, it was a one point difference between PRP versus the placebo group at six months. So all boats rose, but it was placebo. It was just the fact that you injected the joint. Exactly. Yeah. And if you look at the literature, it's interesting to see that 10 to 12 points can also be explained as the scientific quantification of the placebo effect that we were actually measuring, which is also what you measure in previous PRP studies that hadn't compared PRP to a placebo, but just measured the effect on its own. Now, particularly in musculoskeletal medicine, whenever you disprove something that people are clinging to and, and really you know, liking using and they believe they're getting an effect, you get a lot of resistance. So if people are going to say, oh, you didn't use enough or you didn't use it often enough or you didn't go on long enough, how do you respond to those criticisms? Definitely. That's also what we were expecting. And that's why our goal from the start was to make the study as powerful as possible. And with that, I mean, include more than enough patients as possible to make sure that statistically there was no problems with the results we were producing. Regarding the regimen or the frequency of injections or the amount you know, that we're injecting, there's always going to be a, a bit of a problem in generalizability regarding other manufacturers. But we decided to use the most common commercially available PRP at the same time and either prove or disprove that throughout the study. And I think in hindsight, you can ask the question, well, if the regimen slightly differs from what is used in practice or, you know, in a commercial setting, does that mean it does work, even though that this large scaled study showed it didn't work? So the question then is, is the ankle yeah. a peculiar joint? It is a quite a complicated joint compared to the knee. Yeah. Is it likely to work in other joints if it didn't work in the ankle? It's a very interesting question. We've decided to stick to the ankle joint. I mean, you know, both joints are significantly different biomechanically, just purely the way uh, the mortise function of the ankle, so how it perfectly slots together compared to the more rough nature of the knee joint, as it were, but also the amount of kilograms per square centimetre that 
the cartilage takes of the ankle joint and basically how the biology of the ankle cartilage is and differs from the knee joint. It's very difficult to make that direct comparison, but what it does do is actually raise questions about its efficacy in the osteoarthritis. So we've just concluded that, you know, in our study, we don't advise the use of PRP in the treatment or management of ankle osteoarthritis. And further, well set up studies should be done to see if it does play any, should play any role in, in osteoarthritis at all. It's a shame because some proponents of PRP, including orthopaedic surgeons who would stand to gain from joint replacement surgery, believes that it does delay joint replacement surgery. Yeah, definitely. And that's the biggest problem with ankle osteoarthritis. So as I was saying earlier, it's up to 80% is due to previously sustained trauma. So that means that, you know, we're talking about younger patients, relatively athletes that have sustained ankle trauma and basically have to go through life longer with ankle osteoarthritis. And we also did another study where we looked at the mental and physical impact that ankle osteoarthritis has on these patients. And if you look at the treatment options for ankle osteoarthritis, there aren't a lot around if you compare it to like a knee or a hip osteoarthritis where you can you can have a joint replacement. The golden standard in ankle osteoarthritis is generally fixation of the joint where you basically fuse the bones of the ankle joint together. And you can imagine in a relatively young patient, you want to delay that process or that treatment option as far as possible. So definitely it's a massive shame that we weren't able to find a positive effect of PRP as an additional treatment option for ankle osteoarthritis. Liam, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Dr. Liam Padgett is in the Department of Orthopaedic Surgery at the University of Amsterdam. Parkinson's disease is a disabling degenerative problem in the brain which can start quite young. It causes rigidity, tremor, difficulty with movement and in some people can lead to memory and thinking problems. No one's too sure what causes Parkinson's disease but some believe there's a link with influenza which if true could mean that vaccination might prevent Parkinson's in some people. Dr Noel Kokoros and her colleagues try to find out more about whether this link is real. Dr Kokoros is a research scientist at Harvard University's Program Healthcare Institute. Thank you. Where did the idea come from that influenza might be associated with Parkinson's disease? The question has been an open one for decades now and actually sort of initiated around and following the 1918 influenza pandemic. There were reports of a couple of different conditions. One's called encephalitis lethargica. One is called post-encephalitic Parkinsonism. And there was hypotheses years after the pandemic suggesting that they might be associated. And so there's a long history, but over time, there's been more attention paid to, generally speaking, whether infections may be causally related to Parkinson's disease. And it's not just influenza. There's been some question around, for example, hepatitis C virus and some other organisms as well. So the idea is um, that the virus gets into the brain and changes those critical areas in the brain which relate to how muscles are controlled, for example. There's also been some sort of broader mechanism perhaps related to inflammation or neuroinflammation. So something's triggered. Exactly. So how did you study this? I've been collaborating with colleagues in Denmark for some time. And as you may know, in these Scandinavian countries, because of their health system, they have wonderful comprehensive databases where a lot of information on Danish citizens' health and history is collected. And you can do really powerful studies with those data because you have a lot of information on the course of someone's life. And so we use those databases to be able to look back over time from when someone had Parkinson's disease and see if they had a history of any of the infections that we were interested in. We identified everyone who had 
been diagnosed for the first time with Parkinson's disease from 2000 through 2016. And then we identified a comparator group of people who were the same sex and age at that point in time, but did not have Parkinson's disease. Then for both of those groups, we looked back in their history and said, did you have a diagnosis for influenza or any of the other infections that we were interested in? But then we also did some stratification or grouping by time. So did you ever have influenza in your history prior to Parkinson's disease? Did you have it a year before, five years before? Was it 10 years? And we were hypothesizing because of how Parkinson's disease progresses that it would take a long time if an infection or influenza in particular were to be associated with Parkinson's. It wouldn't happen certainly uh, in the very short term and that it would probably take more than 10 years. Then when we looked by time, that's when things started to play out. And how did it play out? So basically when you look in The short window of time within, say, five years of your Parkinson's disease, there's not very much evidence of an association at all. But then when you look at greater than 10 years after, that's when we could see an association in the data. For some of our analysis, when we looked greater than 15 years prior to the Parkinson's disease, we saw a larger association. Importantly, the numbers are small here. So even though we had such a large, relatively speaking, you know, population, because it's it's an entire country's population, it's still a relatively small one. And so when you narrow it down to people with Parkinson's and then people with certain infections, the numbers do get small. So how much of an increased risk was it? It's about a twofold risk increase when we looked greater than 15 years prior to Parkinson's disease, and just under twofold for greater than 10 years. Two things will come to now. One is cause and effect, but the other is, should it be true, this effect? What you're saying here is the implication is, given that there were 10,000 people with Parkinson's disease, double the risk sounds a lot, but the individual risk would be actually quite low. That's right. So this is all relative risk, and the absolute risk is still small. That is an important thing to point out. So if it's cause and effect, which is always hard to determine with these case control studies, then one thing you might see is a dose relationship, which is they've had flu twice, bad enough to have to go into hospital or see your GP, then you might be more at risk. Was there a dose effect? We didn't look at a dose effect, partly because while our primary focus was on influenza, we also did look at many other infections as well. And when you also take time into account, for example, when you just look at, say, among the over 10,000 people with Parkinson's disease, how many of them had an influenza at least 10 years prior to that? It was only 26 people. (laughs) So if you then wanted to take into account number of influenza diagnoses, for example, the numbers just get so small. And so we were somewhat limited in what we could do. And what about other viruses? So some of the other viruses, the challenges were, again, small numbers overall, especially when we got into the specific viruses. Parkinson's is a pretty rare disease. And then you also look for this history of infection, which had to be diagnosed, right? It may be that people had these infections and they just didn't go to the doctor and get diagnosed with them. But hepatitis C, for example, there were very few people with viral hepatitis in this population. And so we just couldn't discern anything there. Basically, the quantitative results were hard to interpret. So you could have underestimated given that you're not picking up every case of flu. Certainly. What does this tell us either about if it's true? I mean, presumably immunization is another reason for immunization against the flu, presumably. And what does it tell us about the causation of Parkinson's disease that we might not already know? 
epidemiologists are trained to not overinterpret individual studies, so we always yeah, but journalists uh, put a lot are of... trained to <laughs> that's extract right, that's the maximum. Right. <laughs> that's right. So we always put lots of caveats and conditions in. But I think all that being said, as I understand it, Parkinson's disease in general, many people, it's unclear. Uh, the majority of patients do not know what the cause of their Parkinson's disease is. And so it might be that infections and perhaps influenza in particular plays some causal role for some proportion of those Parkinson's patients. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Noah Kokoros is a research scientist at the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute, which is part of Harvard Medical School in Boston. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. I'll be back next week with Tegan. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.